Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Two readings this evening. Uh, first reading is Micah uh, chapter 6, that's page 779, uh, or in the large print 927. And then we'll turn uh, to Matthew in a moment. But first reading is Micah chapter 6. As I said earlier, we're continuing on our series through uh, thinking about giving and money. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your gods. Amen. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 23? It's a few pages on, pages 828 or 984 in the large print. And we'll look at a a, a small selection of these verses, starting at verse 1, Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, So, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries, those are uh, boxes with the law written on them, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. 
And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. If you then uh, go to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. If you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the others you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites if you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence you blind pharisee First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. These are God's words to us. Well, four things to get right in order to stop money going wrong. Four things, contentment, love, example, and this evening people. You can catch up the other three sermons. If you want to, you can get them online. This evening, we're thinking about people. And this evening's sermon, you can condense it all down to a single, simple sentence. If you like your sermons that way, you can condense it right down to this. And it's a sentence that goes like this. If when we think about our money, certain people do not enter our minds, then something has gone wrong in our hearts with our money. If when we think about our money, certain people don't come to mind, we we can't see certain faces, certain names, certain people who we know and love. If there are no people in the frame when we think about our money, something has gone wrong in our hearts. For what God wants us to do with our money, friends, is to spend it on others and to give it to others. I wonder what struck you if you've heard all four of these or three of the sermons as we come to this fourth one. I wonder what struck you the most as we've taken time to look at money in the Bible, God and money. For me, the thing that has hit home again is that money, if you like, is the thermometer God inserts into our mouth and under the tongue. Money is the thermometer that God uses to take our spiritual temperature. Money is the MRI scan that God runs over a person to evaluate spiritual health. And when God runs that MRI scan over a person, one of the things that he is looking for on the printout is not pound signs, but people. Where is this person with other people? We, we see pound signs. God sees people. So here's how we're going to see that this evening. We're going to see it in three different places. I want to lead you this evening into a garden. I want to lead you into a courtroom. And I want to lead you into a covenant. Three places where we're going to see three different things about money. Here's the first one this evening, the garden. The garden. And in the garden, I want us to look at Bible blindness. We're going to see three different things in each of those three places. In the garden... Friends, look with me at Bible blindness. Bible blindness. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, woe, hypocrites, for you tithe, you give 10%, that's what a tithe is, you give 10% of mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. See why I've called it the garden? Where is Jesus? What's he done in verse 23? He's walked into the Pharisees' garden, hasn't he? Their herb garden. And he he has a look around and he likes what he sees in their garden. Mint, dill, and cumin. Three herbs growing in the garden. How does your garden grow, Mr. Pharisee? Jesus is saying. And, friends, Jesus says to these Pharisees, you are doing a lot right with your garden. You, you are tithing those three things, those three herbs, mint, dill, and cumin. You're giving 10% of them, giving that to God, and that is a good thing. Tithing, yes, says Jesus, is good. That this kind of giving back to God of what God has given is the very, very least that God's people are expected to do, isn't it? Certainly in, in the Old Testament, the tithe is mandated of God's people. And I, I think the New Testament continues exactly the same ideal, except it never tells us to stop there, does it? Generosity is the oil in the engine of life. Why stop at 10%? That's how the whole Bible thinks. But the basic principle of giving a tenth a tithe is true and, and good. It holds. In Matthew 23, Jesus is not against tithing. No, that's not what Jesus is against. That, that woe in verse 23, it comes in the middle of seven woes in this chapter. There are seven woes that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. This is the middle one, the, the, the fourth one, verses 23 to 24. And many of you will know that in Hebraic thought, the middle is where all the emphasis is. We, we tend to work the other way, don't we, in linear arguments. We build up to a, a strong conclusion at the end. But in Hebraic thought, the emphasis is right smack in the middle. This is the bit where your eyes are meant to focus. This is the heart of them all. Because in this one, in this woe, in this woe alone, Jesus says the problem is not what you do, but what you have not done what you have neglected. Look at it again. What does he say? You have counted the leaves of your garden herbs. You know each one of your plants. You know how much to pluck off. You know how much to give. And as you've had your gardener's microscope out and counting all those things and getting it all perfectly counted, you have neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Oh, you have neglected them. And when you do that, what does he say? What does he say in uh, verse 24? When you do that, it's like pouring your tea through one of those fancy strainers and weeding out that tiny little unclean fly that seems to have wandered, landed in it somehow. But you're wondering why it's hard to swallow your drink because you haven't noticed that you're chewing on a camel hump. It's an astonishing act of blindness, isn't it? Which is bigger, the gnat or the camel? Imagine picking out the gnat and looking at it and saying how awful and not noticing the camel hump right in front of you. Anyone with eyes, anyone who is not blind can see. 
See what Jesus is saying, friends? Which is more important, love for God and love for your neighbor, the kind of love that makes a real difference in people's lives, that justice, mercy, faithfulness, the kind of difference in in people's lives that makes people sing for joy at God's grace or that puts food on somebody else's table or puts clothes on their back and opens the door and welcomes them into your home. Which is more important? That kind of real spirituality, or Jesus says, is it singing in church and attending the prayer meeting and helping with the Sunday school? Which is it that matters most? Love of beauty and truth and goodness and wholeness, or the 10% of your salary that you gave and you don't even notice it's gone? Friends, these words of the Lord Jesus are so strong, aren't they? Don't come to me with your spice rack precisely measured, Jesus is saying, while your heart is completely barren. That's the challenge. Isn't that what he's saying? You're blind if you do that. You're blind if you do that, for that is not what the Bible tells us to do, is it? In the garden, look at Bible blindness. See, reading the Bible properly is the big issue in this chapter. Put your eyes uh, right back at the start that Will read first, chapter 23, verse 1. Reading the Bible properly is the big issue in Matthew 23. Reading the Bible correctly is what the Pharisees did. You see it in verse 1 and verse 2. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Moses, the great Bible teacher of the Old Testament. He's handed his mantle on to the Pharisees. So do and observe whatever they tell you. As the successor to Moses, the Pharisees held out to the people what the law said, and they pointed to the law, and they they preached the law to the people. Yes, says Jesus, so far so good. Do and observe, verse 3, do and observe whatever they tell you. When they speak to you and when they say, the Bible says, friends, sit up and listen. Always listen when somebody says to you, the Bible says. And look what Jesus says at the end of verse 3, and do not presume that is enough. Never presume that is enough. What works do they do? For these Pharisees preach, but do not practice. The simple fact, says Jesus, is that these men will read the Bible out to you, They will read it out loud and preach it to you, and then they themselves do not see its meaning. See verse 4? They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. Are they carrying these heavy loads? No, they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You work hard and keep sweating, and I'm not even going to bother lifting a finger. Well, friends, many of you know this is true. Sometimes there is nothing more deadly than the Bible in the hands of religious professionals. Nothing more deadly than that sometimes. They, they, they add to the Bible's commands. They spell out its regulations and prohibitions, and they spell it out to you in minute detail all the ways in which you might possibly offend God. And they do nothing to help you please God. They, they impose the law on you and make it weigh down on your back. And in the process, they show you nothing whatsoever about the gracious, loving character of God, the kind and forgiving God who gave the law in the first place. 
That kind of blindness with the Bible, friends, is the worst kind of Bible blindness in the world. And that's the point Jesus is making. If you scan your eyes through Matthew 23, that's the point of all these woes, blindness. It's the kind of person, verse 25, who says, "Never, never worry about the inside, about your heart. Never worry about your greed, your lust, your self-indulgence. Just be at church on time every week. Never miss a Sunday. Make sure that your children are well-behaved in church. Never cause a problem. Make sure everybody else can see you're the model family. That's what matters to God. That's what these people were saying. Along comes the Lord Jesus, verse 25. Where do you get that in the Bible? says Jesus. I can't see it when I read the law. I never knew that that's what God wanted. So why are you living as if it is? I think, I think verse 27 that we didn't read, look at verse 27. This is the most biting of them all. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You couldn't get worse than tombs and dead bodies to first century Jews. They were richly unclean. And so every year as Passover approached, as people had to travel and pass close to these tombs, they would would whitewash them, paint them white so that people knew to steer clear of them. Because outwardly white, they are inwardly rotting. Stay away. The whole point of that ritual is to show that God detests uncleanness, not to show that he does not care whether you're you're unclean on the inside. No, Bible blindness is the worst kind of blindness there is. You, You know, Bible blindness, friends, is not reading the Bible and being unsure what it means. That's not Bible blindness, because that's all of us, isn't it? I can assure you, that is me on a Sunday morning. We're we're starting 2 Samuel next week. Anybody know what 2 Samuel is about? Because I sure as goodness don't know yet. Bible blindness is not sitting with an open Bible, scratching your head, saying, what does this mean? That's not Bible blindness. No, Bible blindness is when you can see what it means and you do not do it. When we've got it, when it's clear, and then we turn around and walk the other direction and do the opposite or ignore it. Bible blindness is when you are doing every single Christian thing under the sun that looks good apart from being merciful, apart from being just, Apart from being faithful, Bible blindness is when the truth is actually the opposite of what it looks like. I saw an amazing example of this recently. I I, I came across a park bench in a park that shall remain nameless. And as I came up to this park bench, I saw there was one of these benches where I thought, oh, somebody that somebody loved has died. There were flowers on it. The bench was new. There was a new gleaming plaque in the middle. And it looked like one of these beautiful memorials to somebody. I got up and I read the park bench. I looked at the plaque and it said, in loving memory, we'll call him John Smith, in loving memory of John Smith, Smith, who hated this park and everybody in it. Amazing. 
exactly the opposite of what I thought I was looking at when I got up close and saw what it was really about. But Bible blindness, friends, is what we have when we have signed a gifted form for our giving, but we despise the people at the church we're giving it to. The truth is the opposite of what it looks like. Now notice, friends, verse 23. You notice how in that verse, the the imagery moves from the garden to the courtroom. The imagery changes here, but you have neglected the weightier matters. Now we're not in the garden. We're in the courtroom. The weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Dear Pharisees, I see how your garden grows and what you do with it. But now let's keep talking and move down the road into the courtroom and let's talk some more about the law. You Pharisees, Jesus is saying to them, you do not just have a a sight problem, you have a weight problem. Your spiritual disease is due to your weight issues. You've got to be brave, haven't you, to comment on people's weight You are placing the wrong weight on good things, and you are placing no weight at all on the most important things. The wrong weight on good things and no weight at all on the most important things. So here's the second point. When Jesus takes us into his courtroom, we can see that money goes wrong when we major on the minors. Number two, the courtroom majoring on the minors, the garden, Bible blindness, the courtroom, majoring on the minors. I want you just to turn back, keep, keep a finger in Matthew chapter 23, but just turn back to Micah chapter 6 uh, that Will read for us. And the reason we read those verses is because the words of Jesus in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, those words come from this chapter, Micah 6. And it's no wonder that the Lord Jesus introduces to the Pharisees the issue of the law. For Micah chapter 6 is a courtroom drama, isn't it? See the opening verse. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord. God is the plaintiff and the mountains of the earth are the jury. He calls his people in to the courtroom. He says to his people, these hills have seen a thing or two. These mountains have been here long before you were around. They, they have seen, a, seen it all come and go. And the defendant is his people, verse 2. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And what had gone wrong here is that these people were majoring on the minors, now, here's the, po- here's the thing to get right. Don't get this wrong. The minors are very important things. That they were good things, like tithing in Matthew chapter 23. Here in Micah chapter 6, the good thing that the people were majoring on was the sacrificial system. But the people forgot the point of the sacrifices. You see, the, the dead animal in your hand or the dead animal lying on the altar is the minor. But what's the major thing as you lay the animal on the altar and its blood is spilled? The major thing is the heart of love for God, not the dead animal. 
And see what, what God is saying, the, the, these words in verse 6 to you, They're so biting, aren't they? He's imagining, God is imagining someone at home, verse 6, Sunday morning, with what shall I come before the Lord and buy myself before God on high? I know, I'm going to take him burnt offerings. I'm going to take him calves a year old. I'm going to take, actually today, do you know what? I'm going to take thousands of rams. And I'm going to take 10,000 rivers of oil to God in the temple and lay them all down to him. God is saying to his people, friends, when you see me angry, you think a quick trip to the temple will do. Quick, get an offering together, add up all these zeros, the, the thousands of rivers of oil, get everything together and take that to God. That will keep the old boy happy. It's like the husband, doesn't it, after an argument who, who thinks the way to fix the argument is to run down to the garage on the corner and to get cheap flowers. There you go, dear, flowers. That's it all sorted now. That's how you treat me, God is saying, verses 6 to 8. See, the point of these verses, friends, is God is saying to his people, when did I ever ask for thousands of rams? When did I ever ask for 10,000 of rivers of oil. I never asked for that. I just asked for a tiny amount. I certainly, verse 7, I certainly never asked for the life of your firstborn son. But isn't it true, friends, that is always the answer of empty religion, isn't it? Bang a few notes on the end and surely God will be happy. Increase the offering. Make, make it bigger. Everybody has his price, even God. Up the ante, show a bit of religious fervor now and again. That should do, it enough, do enough to keep him quiet and to calm him down and to see me right through the pearly gates. Do you know, isn't it true, one of the hardest things for us, I think whatever our personality types, whatever our background, or whatever our experience of God and his people and the gospel, one of the hardest things to ever get drilled right into our heads and deep down into our hearts, into the inner recesses of our being, is that God is a lover, not an employer. God is a lover, not an employer. What we labor under so often, isn't it true, is, that, is the false guilt of thinking that we haven't done enough for God. We haven't witnessed enough, haven't prayed enough, haven't been nice enough, kind enough, good enough, haven't read my Bible enough. And so because I haven't done all those things enough, I have not done enough to earn God's blessings towards me. God is an employer in our mind who simply hands out rewards on the basis of what I've earned. And because we burden ourselves with false guilt, we're so often blind to our real guilt, which is that we have not loved him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not found him to be the most beautiful being imaginable. We have not worshipped him with everything that we have and adored him. We think what God wants is our performance, and so we feel bad when we think we've turned in a bad one, without ever realizing that what God wants is me, all of me. I wonder, do you ever offer God everything apart from the things that you think he asks for? No, he... He does not want your time. God does not need your money. Maybe that's 
one of the most beautiful things we can say in four sermons on money as we think together as a church family about giving and our building project and all the things for the future. God does not need our money. He doesn't want your children simply raised in a nice environment. He does not want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. You, all of you, the garden, the courtroom. And let's finish with this, friends. Number three, the covenant. The covenant. Here's what God wants in the covenant. Relationship, not the record. Relationship, not the record. Did you see how from start to finish in Micah chapter 6, in his case against his people, God is concerned for the relationship that he has with them, not the, not the record, not their record of their performance. Look how beautifully simple the Lord's requirement is in verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is what I want, God says. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with me. Do you notice the two planes there in that verse? There's the horizontal plane of our lives, us and other people, justice in your dealings with others, mercy in your relating to others, and the vertical plane of our lives, us walking humbly with God. It's all-inclusive, all isn't it? It's so expansive. Do you notice the surprise in that verse? There's always a surprise when we think of, God, of what God wants of us. Look at where Micah puts puts the surprise. Look at where he puts our actions, our doings, our tasks. He puts our doings on the horizontal plane, outwards towards others. What does God want from me for you? He wants me to treat you rightly. He wants me to overlook your faults. But what does God want from me for him? He wants me to be with him. To, to walk with him. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Walking with someone. It's intimate, close. It's what you do with a friend. God wants me to enjoy him, to, to love him. I think verse 8 is beautifully simple, isn't it? It's so free of clutter and performance and expectations and standards and rules and regulations that we so often impose on ourselves. Here I am, says God, as he stands in the courtroom with his, his hands out to his people. That, that's chapter 6, verse 3, isn't it? What, the relationship is not over. This is not a divorce. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Here is God standing in the courtroom. Won't you walk with me, he says, like we used to? Friends, brothers and sisters this evening, my church family, as we think about giving our money and as we think about doing it in the midst of, well, what are the, what's the list of things? A cost of living crisis, building project giving with costs seeming to escalate all the time, a time of serious sacrificial commitment for us. I want to encourage us this evening, as we think about our money, never to think in terms of bricks and buildings or pound signs and amounts, but to think in terms of what God wants. What does he require of us? 
just actions, a love for mercy, and faithfulness to Him. There's so much we could say here. I want to just give us two applications, and then we're finished. Two applications. You might want to go back uh, to Matthew 23 just to have that in front of you. But here's the first application. Isn't it true that conservative churches, like like ours, churches that are conservative in, in doctrine, isn't it true, friends, that sadly we often have weak social consciences? We pride ourselves on good teaching, good theology, good doctrine, but we are weak sometimes on mercy ministries. These things that Jesus says are weightier than others, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Do you know, I'll never forget many years ago seeing a church. It was an amazing privilege to help a church that was joining our family of churches, the IPC. And this church was discovering the Westminster Confession of Faith. They were discovering this beautiful, doc, the beautiful document full of amazing teaching, beautiful theology. But they were discovering that love for good theology hand in hand within their church at that particular time with a growing culture of foster care and adoption of small children. And that discovery of those things in that church life was coming about through some exceptionally difficult and painful experiences. There were men and women in that church reading about the doctrine of adoption in the Westminster Confession of Faith and saying, so I'm going to adopt. I'm going to be like God is. Taking somebody from the outside where we were lost and abandoned and calling us in from the highways and byways to have a seat at his table, a child of the king, an inheritance in the kingdom. That's the doctrine of adoption. And here were people saying, we're so gripped by it that we want to take that and display that outwards to the world. This is what God is like. This is who God is. This is how God loves. It's precious beyond words, isn't it, when people see the the, the deep outworking of this and apply it individually to them in ways that work for them. Within that church family, I remember speaking to one uh, one elderly man, a Christian foster carer. Uh, he, he told me that Christian foster carers, as you can imagine, are treated with suspicion and disdain for their Christian beliefs. And yet this particular family was telling me that, uh, that, that the powers that be were amazed to discover a Christian couple willing to provide foster care for a lesbian couple whose, whose child needed help and attention, looking after And all of a sudden, a watching world was amazed to discover, and these two women were amazed to discover that there are not just two options of same-sex relationships, that there's not just homophobia and the terrible ugliness of gay bashing. There's not just the other end of the spectrum, open-armed acceptance of the gay lifestyle. No, No, there's a third way, the way of a God who takes abandoned, lost, guilty sinners and says, no, but welcome. Come in. There is, Jesus says in Matthew 23, there is the way of justice 
and mercy and faithfulness. What might it look like for us to create a culture like that? It's a wonderfully exciting time, friends. I want to encourage you, do not fear the cost of living crisis. Do not fear all the things that we naturally fear about our building project, the growing cost of it. For one day in God's kindness, friends, we will have a vehicle from the very heart of it to bless this city with its open doors. That's the point of it all. That's why we're doing it, isn't it? To have a place where we can say to people, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, you will find those three things and so much more here in our midst. And some of you I know are already beginning to think about what could we do, what might we do, what could, what could we do better? Beautiful questions to be asking, beautiful conversations to be having. Here's the second final application. Let me finish with this very quickly. Verse 23, Matthew's word there, faithfulness, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I think the Lord Jesus uses that word, or Matthew uses that word here, because in Micah, the word for loving mercy or loving kindness, it's, it's the covenant word, hesed, faithful love. Justice, mercy, and covenant love. Listen to what that word faithfulness means. Here's, here's one commentator. Faithfulness means the deliverance or protection of another with whom one is in a relationship. The deliverance or protection of another. It describes unfailing love, the keeping of faith between related parties. The relationship may be personal and intimate, like husband and wife, or father and son, brothers and friends. The word usually appears in a context where one of the parties is in a weaker situation and utterly dependent on the strength of another. It's a beautiful word. Do you know why, why God wants that sort of thing from us? Because that is what we are like with him, aren't we? We are weak, dependent, and he is strong and life-giving. And God loves it. He just loves it when we look like him in how we live. Well, one of the things that we've been seeking to do as we try and do this building project, if I can put it like this, friends, one of the things we want to do is to put our money where our covenant mouth is, if I can put it like that. That's what we often say, isn't it? Put your money where your mouth is. We want to put our money where our covenant mouth is. In other words, why do up this building? Why renovate it from top to bottom? because we want to deliver and protect the weaker people we are in relationship with. We are building for the future, building for your children, my children and their children, and the children we will never ever meet for the generations to come. That's what faithful love looks like, protecting the smallest and the weakest. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with his children's children. His hesed love, his covenant faithfulness is with those who fear him. His righteousness with their children's children. Friends, when, when you think about your money in any shape or form, when you drive down West North Street and you see that building and all the potential that it has for the future, think of people and be faithful to them. 
Think of people when you think of your money and act justly with it. Think of people when you think of your money and act mercifully. Think of people, friends, and you won't be blind. You won't major on the minors, and instead, you'll be like God. You'll be like God. Amen.